Today the lecture is A Downhill Slide. In Tracing Key Cold War Events. Last time we were in Korea. This time it's Latin America and the Middle East. FDR's good neighbor policy was popular right across the Latin American region. And this soon paid dividends for U.S. national security. During World War II, Argentina had strong Nazi links, but every other Latin American state somehow contributed to the Allied war effort. Mexico, for instance, sent a flight squadron. The uh, <clears throat> Grand Alliance used Latin American raw materials while employing its territory for bases. Various Latin American countries, including Costa Rica, scrutinized their people for disloyal acts, sometimes placing German expatriates in internment camps, just as the U.S. infamously held Japanese Americans. After the war, Harry Truman kept up the improved Latin American relationship, visiting Mexico and reaffirming the non-intervention pledge. Then, in his 1949 inaugural address, Truman initiated America's first major foreign assistance program, called Point Four. Unlike later aid programs, this one focused on technical experts sharing American know-how in agricultural, health, and various industries. After Congress budgeted $25 million to kick off the program, it became another part of the Cold War as America tried to lure developing countries onto its side. Back when the Allies wanted friendly Soviet relations to defeat Hitler, they had downplayed the threat to Western values of Marxist ideas. Yet, some of the causes that these communist parties claim to stand for, they badly needed attention in Latin American states. More social programs for the very poorest. Increased influence for workers, industrial or agricultural. Less fraud and corruption among political elites. And given Latin America's poverty and the vast disparities in wealth, the communist ideology was bound to attract some. And sure enough, communist movements began to sprout up. And yet, many Latin Americans could see the brutality and the repression of Stalin's Soviet Union or Mao's China. And as the Cold War accelerated, many of the most influential actors in Latin American societies came to see communism as potentially a very disruptive and threatening force within their societies. This was certainly the perspective of the militaries, the major economic interests in Latin America and much of the hierarchy of the Catholic Church. Immediately after World War II, 
Most Latin American governments were conservative, leery of left-wing ideas. And in that whole context, in 1947, America signed its first Cold War alliance at Rio de Janeiro. Rio Pact members agreed that when national security threats arose, the states would all vote, and a two-thirds majority would decide what to do. An attack on one was an attack on all. But nobody had to send military forces. Instead, all the Rio Pact members simply agreed to do something to help out. Break relations or institute economic sanctions. And American isolationism had lost such force by 47 that the U.S. Senate approved the Rio Pact 72 to 1. Then, 1948, came the Bogota Conference, where all 21 American republics agreed to create the Organization of American States, headquartered in Washington, D.C. So, here, the countries of the Americas were establishing political machinery to help them to cooperate when future crises occurred. And when war in Korea broke out, 16 Latin American governments pitched in, with Colombia even sending along combat troops. So, right after World War II, the U.S. really saw eye-to-eye -eye with many Latin American governments, and inter-American relations were at a high point. But from here, a gradual but accelerating slide downhill soon began. And it was marked by a growing divergence of concerns. The U.S., having fought that Korean conflict to a bloody stalemate, was most concerned with containing communism. And the chief focus of the containment policy was Europe. But in Latin America, where the threat of communism seemed much more distant, many governments were most focused on economic development. And the result was a period of real neglect of Latin America, with all eyes on Europe. No Latin American Marshall Plan got launched. And though some technical assistance came with point four, very little economic aid passed from the United States into the region. At first, the attention of the Eisenhower administration was focused on bringing the Korean War to an end. But much rhetoric got expended on how America's real foreign policy goal should be to roll back the Soviet sphere of influence. And that thought takes us right back into Central America, this time to Guatemala. Guatemala was a country where a tiny elite of about 2% 
owned the vast majority of the land. Half the population were poverty-stricken and often abused Indians, many from little villages in the remote highlands. By the early 50s, two contenders dominated the Guatemalan political scene, and one, Jacobo Arbenz Guzman, ended up engineering the assassination of the other, the chief of the armed forces. Now, this was old hat in Guatemala, a country long rife with political violence and intimidation. In 1839, just 18 years after Guatemala had gained independence from Spain, an English traveler wrote of this country already all full of political violence. Quote, There is but one side to the politics in Guatemala. Both parties have a beautiful way of producing unanimity of opinion by driving out of the country all who do not agree with them. Well, in January 1953, Jacobo Arbenz got inaugurated president. And the different views of the U.S. and Latin American states soon became very evident. In implementing a sweeping land reform program, Arbenz expropriated 234,000 acres from that giant U.S. multinational, United Fruit. As Arbenz saw it, the poor needed land, and United Fruit owned huge tracts of Guatemala but was using only about 10% of it. Since FDR's day, the U.S. had recognized that governments do have the sovereign right to expropriate territory held by foreigners, but only so long as prompt and adequate compensation got paid. Well, President Arbenz offered payment for the United Fruit land that the company thought was very low. You see, despite United Fruit owning this huge amount of uncultivated territory, given its influence inside the Guatemalan government, the company was paying a very small tax bill like $600,000 a year. So when Arbenz moved to expropriate that land, he offered the sum of 600000 Not in cash, but in 25-year bonds, earning 6% a year. Note, too, United Fruit had lots of influence within the Eisenhower administration. The company's chief New York law firm had once counted as a partner new Secretary of State John Foster Dulles. Well, the U.S. government was quite concerned at the precedent to be set here. What if other countries expropriated American-owned land and provided inadequate compensation in return? Guarding against that? seemed like a legitimate objective for U.S. foreign policy. 
And so the U.S. government vigorously complained. And then the Eisenhower administration turned to law. It suggested taking the dispute to the International Court of Justice to be resolved. But for the World Court to hear a case, both sides must agree. And here, Arbenz refused, essentially saying, take my offer or leave it. In response, the U.S. then imposed economic sanctions on Guatemala. Now, the Guatemalan Communist Party was not strong, though it was becoming somewhat more active. Guatemalan Communists had won just four seats in the 56-person legislature, and all the traditionally powerful players in Guatemalan politics opposed them. But Arbenz was trying to appeal to peasants through land reform. Communists did have some influence among the labor unions and the poor. And Arbenz had helped stir up unions over in neighboring Honduras. And then Arbenz decided to appoint a communist to his cabinet. To U.S. officials, deep in the Cold War frame of mind, all this looked like trouble. And influential officials, including the ambassador, began to portray Jacobo Arbenz as a Soviet puppet. In August 53, the U.S. National Security Council defined Guatemala as a threat to U.S. security. We also now know that in 1954, President Eisenhower had received a secret report from James Doolittle, a World War II military hero, about how best to employ the CIA in this accelerating Cold War. The key sentences read, There are no rules in such a game. Hitherto acceptable norms of human conduct do not apply. Well, in keeping with that Rio Pact approach, the first public U.S. response to events in Guatemala came in the OAS. In March 53, at one of those inter-American conferences, Secretary Dulles succeeded in lobbying for a resolution that carved out an exception to the prior U.S. pledge of non-intervention in Latin America. Here, the majority of Latin American governments agreed that U.S. intervention against states dominated by the international communist movement would be okay. But in 54, at an inter-American conference in Caracas, Venezuela, the U.S. tried to get a more specific resolution passed, denouncing the infiltration of communists in Guatemala. Guatemala voted against it. Mexico and Costa Rica abstained. And negotiations followed to try to gain something more acceptable to Latin Americans. 
Eventually, a resolution passed declaring, if a state were to fall under communist rule, all governments would exchange information on local communist activities and they'd consult about further action. No question, all this was a diplomatic defeat for the Eisenhower administration. Dulles had hoped Latin Americans would strongly condemn developments in Guatemala and support a multilateral military intervention there. Well, that scenario was not going to happen. Latin American governments were concerned with their own left wings. They didn't want political opponents criticizing them for intervening alongside U.S. troops against fellow Latin Americans. But behind the scenes, the leaders of a number of Latin American countries with quite conservative governments, they quietly approved of unilateral U.S. intervention. Their attitude? Let the Americans do the dirty work, ousting communists, so long as Latin American governments didn't have to publicly support it. So, with respect to Guatemala in 1954, quite a few Latin American governments were not immediately outspoken in opposition. And that was something that would change markedly with future American interventions in the region. Well, within that whole context, the Arbenz government, sensing its danger, asked for and got a big weapons shipment from Eastern Europe. In spring 1954, a Swedish freighter sailing from Stettin, Poland, arrived in Puerto Barrios, Guatemala, and unloaded 15,000 cases of top-notch Czechoslovakian weapons right in front of the Guatemalan Minister of Defense. U.S. officials saw this as definitive proof that Arbenz was now firmly on the communist side. And other states seemed to agree. The neighboring Honduran and Nicaraguan governments signed a mutual defense treaty, with Secretary of State John Foster Dulles publicly accusing Arbenz of violating the Monroe Doctrine and wanting to dominate Central America. And the U.S. began to move tanks and planes into neighboring Honduras. In June 54, Arbenz strengthened his grip on power, essentially turning Guatemala into a dictatorship, executing various opponents. In the meantime, a right-wing Guatemalan rebel movement was gaining strength, with its goal forcibly overthrowing Arbenz. The rebels drew on support, not only from the CIA, but among disaffected Guatemalans, then living in exile in Honduras and Nicaragua. And this rebel movement 
coalescing against the Arbenz government came to be led by a former military man, Colonel Carlos Castillo Armas. U.S. officials saw this as an opportunity to strike a blow against communism in Central America at what seemed a modest cost. Starting in 1952, Truman's last year in office, the CIA put into effect a covert operation called El Diablo, Spanish for the devil. The CIA operation in Guatemala, supervised by top officials, including Secretary Dulles's brother, Alan Dulles, included establishing a training base for Guatemalan rebels in Honduras, promising air support during the rebellion, and supplying weapons to them, plus some military training in the U.S. The CIA plan also included a hit list of 58 prominent Guatemalans as assassination targets. In fact, though, no such killings occurred during the intervention, nor is there evidence Eisenhower knew or approved. As the rebels prepared to invade, a White House meeting occurred with the president consulting CIA Director Alan Dulles. The rebels had lost two of their three old bombers, and the question was, should the U.S. government replace them? Eisenhower asked Dulles, What do you think Castillo's chances would be without the aircraft? Answer, about zero. Suppose we supply the aircraft, what would the chances be then? Dulles responded, about 20%. Eisenhower knew the psychological impact that air support could provide. And the president's memoirs later laid out his conviction that the duty of the U.S. government was to replace the planes. In June 54, Carlos Castillo Armas, with his small army, crossed the border from Honduras to Guatemala. And during the next two weeks of fighting, Eisenhower did order in U.S. air support. Then, as the U.S. government broadcast liberation radio into Guatemala, American planes dropped dynamite sticks in the capital of Guatemala City, as well as anti-government, pro-rebel pamphlets. In all the chaos, with the Guatemalan military now deserting their president, Jacobo Arbenz, fearing for his life, fled Guatemala for Czechoslovakia. And then, in the especially ugly aftermath, when Castillo took over, he used CIA lists of suspected communists to execute Arbenz's former supporters and many advocates of land reform to boot. The public U.S. response to events in Guatemala 
came from Secretary of State Dulles. He congratulated Guatemalans for eliminating a communist threat and declared the rebellion had added, quote, a new and glorious chapter to the already great tradition of the American states. In truth, the American intervention in Guatemala had many rippling repercussions, and glorious isn't the word. First, alongside CIA activities in Iran, we'll get to in a minute, this started a new Cold War chapter of clandestine operations. But often, the details of covert activities do come to light, harming reputations for lawful behavior and creating a lot of resentment abroad. Second, and most tragically, these affairs in Guatemala then ushered in a long era of military dictatorship for Guatemalans. Castillo routinely used violence to intimidate protesters and opponents. Up until 1957, when one of the president's own palace guards assassinated him. By the 1960s, the Guatemalan military was fully in charge, retaining power by using torture and killings to impose its will. And starting in about 60, Guatemala experienced civil war as leftist forces, backed by Cuba, operated extensively in the eastern part of the country, even assassinating the U.S. ambassador. For their part, right-wing death squads hunted down and murdered many favoring reform, whether or not they were communists. Rebel movements continued to rise up, particularly among the Indians, which Guatemalan authorities suppressed with terrible savagery and abuses. And once again, some Americans were involved, training and advising the military, passing on intelligence, and so on. Later, American officials were found to have lied about the U.S. government's knowledge of atrocities, including massacres in which Guatemalan soldiers had wiped out entire villages. By the time a peace settlement was reached in 1996, Guatemala had been racked by three decades of unrest, with over 200,000 killed. Now, all of this is not attributable to the 1954 American military intervention, which, after all, was limited in scope. Guatemala was deeply fractured and extraordinarily unequal long before 1954. But responding to Cold War pressures, the U.S. had played a very unfortunate role as democracy crumbled. Though you can question whether the democratic system had a promising future in this era. Guatemalan democracy was already breaking down. 
And it's very likely right-wing forces would have violently challenged them whether the U.S. had intervened or not in the 1954 coup d'etat. Still, the fact remains the U.S. government did assist Guatemala's military rulers who, during the Cold War years, could be counted on as loyal anti-communist supporters of America. Frederick Hitz, Inspector General of the CIA, later reflected, quote, It's one of the saddest chapters of American relations with Latin America. The U.S. felt responsible for what it started by removing our bends, and essentially we were trapped. We didn't know how to get off the train. In fact, as late as the early 1990s, the CIA was still funding the Guatemalan military without the knowledge of the U.S. State Department. And two senior CIA officials got fired when Congress discovered the CIA station in Guatemala was covering up Guatemalan human rights violations, not only from Congress, but from CIA headquarters. Anthony Harrington of Clinton's Intelligence Oversight Board recalled, the board asked itself, the Cold War's over. What are we doing down there? More immediately, though, within the 1950s, foreign the foreign policy-making establishment of the United States, the Guatemalan intervention just vastly enhanced the prestige of the CIA. In the short term, this seemed to have been a very successful operation. Few dollars invested, little bloodshed. It cost maybe $20 million dollars. And it involved eh, a few hundred American personnel. And then Carlos Castillo Armas did restore the United Fruit Land. And Eisenhower directed lots of economic and military aid to the new government. So you can think of the 1954 Guatemalan intervention as representing the extension of the Cold War into the Western Hemisphere. The non-intervention promises that had added real substance to all the rhetoric of the good neighbor policy had now been breached. And from this point forward, Latin American perceptions of the United States became much more negative, with anti-Americanism really gaining strength. In fact, right after the Guatemalan intervention, demonstrations against the U.S. broke out in various parts of Latin America. In Chile, for example, angry students burned effigies of Eisenhower. With the U.S. reputation clearly suffering, in 1958, President Eisenhower sent off his vice president, Richard Nixon, on a quote-unquote goodwill tour of Latin America. Nixon didn't want to go, thinking the trip would be boring. Fooled him. 
At the airport in Caracas, Venezuela, Nixon at first thought it was drizzling. His Secret Service detail reported, No, that's actually a rain of human spit from, quote, weird-looking communist agitators. When Nixon visited San Marcos University, rock-throwing students pelted his entourage, forcing the VP to beat a hasty retreat. En route to the airport, Venezuelans held up signs reading, Death to Nixon, while cars veered at the motorcade. When Nixon's limousine slowed because of crowds, so much spit cascaded down. The chauffeur had to use the windshield wipers to see. At one point, a Secret Service agent, a man presumably not prone to panicking, cocked his gun, saying, Might as well take a few of them with us, since we're going. But the Venezuelan driver got the limo off to the airport, and upon reaching the safety of Air Force One, Nixon opted to cancel the rest of the Goodwill tour and head back to the White House. By now, U.S. relations with Latin America were in free fall, and clearly some new American approach to the region was in order. And U.S. foreign policymakers ultimately landed on economic development programs as key to regaining more friendly relations. Before Nixon's Caracas trip, Eisenhower had opposed a plan to put together an inter-American development bank. But after the VP reported in, the president quickly reversed that decision. And then, in his last year in office, Eisenhower committed the U.S. to long-term economic aid. And from that, Special Fund for Economic and Social Development, along came John F. Kennedy's Alliance for Progress. But another, bigger Cold War storm was also coming. The whole crisis of Cuba. Next time. But for now, we turn to U.S. foreign policy in the Middle East. From a Western viewpoint, the Middle East is often portrayed as a topsy-turvy place of insane acts leading to never-ending war. But as we enter the complicated, yet fascinating and timely world of Middle Eastern politics and the role of U.S. foreign relations in them, I want you to think a bit critically about that perspective. Are foreign relations in this region really so bizarre? Or, with a bit of effort, can we grasp the key interests of the different actors? Let's start back with World War II. An important Nazi military target was Egypt and the Suez Canal, that great artery of shipping between the Mediterranean Sea and the Indian Ocean. German General Erwin Rommel's plans to seize the canal 
prompted the Allies toward the North African invasion General Dwight Eisenhower led. Through the rest of the war, Allied troops occupied much of the Middle East, a typical state of affairs for the region. Since World War I, many Middle Eastern lands were lodged in an interim stage between their colonial pasts and their futures as independent sovereign states. So, big picture. As European colonialism withered and died in the Middle East, great powers turned to the familiar equation of granting statehood. And when peace came, the Middle Eastern states that did achieve full sovereignty included Iraq, Syria, Jordan, and Lebanon. But realize, outside powers had often drawn the borders of Middle Eastern states, either totally arbitrarily or with an eye cocked toward the future oil concessions they hoped to secure. Now, before World War II, British oil companies had been fixtures in Iraq and Iran, and also in small British-controlled states like Kuwait and Qatar. But certain important Middle Eastern states, Jordan, Syria, even Egypt, had relatively little oil, or even no major deposits at all. And the mix of peoples within these artificially contrived territories meant that old Wilsonian formula of single nations enjoying their own states, it didn't really apply here. Further, in the Middle East as elsewhere, new sovereign states often became problematic sovereign states, hot spots of potential conflict. Next, let's focus on the situation in Palestine. Starting with the Balfour Declaration of 1917, Great Britain had strongly encouraged European Jews to migrate to Palestine, this homeland of vital importance to the Jewish religion. In World War I, British forces had successfully fought the Turks here, and the territory contained modest-sized but long-standing Arab populations. Well, as Britain administered this Palestine Mandate, as it was called, all under League of Nations auspices, more Jews came and settled in the area. So, by the mid-20th century, a couple things are going on. Two ancient peoples, who'd each occupied Palestine in past eras, are now eyeing the prize of their own new sovereign state. And a Western-sponsored Settler state is emerging. Much as European settlers had been entering African countries, from Algeria in the north 
to South Africa in the south. And trouble is brewing in lots of these places, including Palestine. Next, recall that retreat from empire marking post-war British history. As part of that, Great Britain began to pull out its military forces that had been keeping order within the Palestine Mandate. In November 47, the UN General Assembly declared Palestine should be partitioned between a Jewish state, Israel, and an Arab state, as yet unnamed, which would be loosely bound to one another. So, how did the U.S. respond? In May 1948, President Harry Truman, in another example of his abrupt decisiveness, Truman recognized Israeli sovereignty at once, like 11 minutes after the Israeli government had announced it was independent. Well, today, after decades of very close American-Israeli relations, this may seem natural. In 48, this development was no foregone conclusion. During much of World War II, the U.S. government had not been paying especially close attention to the plight of European Jews. Reports of the horrors of the Holocaust were greeted mostly with disbelief and ignorance, mixed with some anti-Semitism. But from a wartime meeting between FDR and Ibn Saud, founder of Saudi Arabia, the paramount U.S. interest in Arab oil had been clearly identified. And after World War II, the so-called Seven Sisters, the seven big Western-headquartered oil multinationals, they invested heavily in the Middle East. So, in 1939, British companies had controlled 60% of Middle Eastern oil. The U.S., its companies, 13%. French and Dutch companies, much of the rest. By 1956, U.S. companies controlled 65% of Middle Eastern oil. British companies, about 30%. With this rapidly growing American oil investment, various American officials were arguing that U.S. national interests lay more with the Arabs than with the Jews. But here, moral sentiments and political considerations overcame economics. Truman felt strongly about the fate of Jewish victims of Hitler and their long-denied quest for a homeland. And the American Jewish vote was firmly lodged behind his Democratic Party. Now, many of the Arabs in Palestine didn't want to share territory with this new state of Israel and responded violently. 
And before long, the UN General Assembly designated Count Folk Bernadotte, head of the Swedish Red Cross, to try to mediate a settlement. But by the time Bernadotte arrived, nearby Arab states were already launching a military invasion of Israel. The Security Council called for a ceasefire, and negotiations ensued. But as progress lagged, fighting broke out again. Another ceasefire. More fighting. And then, extremists assassinated Count Bernadotte. Ralph Bunch, an African-American working in the UN Secretariat, took over. And in a real triumph for early UN diplomacy, Ralph Bunch got the parties to stop fighting and allow UN military observers in to enforce the truce. Without question, the United Nations did some good work in this early Middle Eastern war. The Arabs and Israelis paid attention to Security Council resolutions, and the presence of UN military observers became a key feature of the peace. Yet, some significant problems surfaced, too. The 1948 war not only left bitter feelings all around, but it raised some pretty unrealistic hopes about UN diplomacy. Some expected that the weight and prestige of the United Nations could often be used to bring about lasting peace between peoples in conflict. That, of course, did not happen. Others projected that parties would routinely follow UN Security Council resolutions. That didn't happen either. Still others expected Americans and Soviets would regularly set aside their differences when serious violence broke out, as they'd largely done here, and cooperate for the common good. Well, we all know that definitely did not happen. Further, the UN at this moment in time, very much under the thumb of the United States, the UN might have handled its role in a more balanced, even-handed manner. Here, the superpowers agreed an Israeli state should be established and protected on account of the terrible suffering of Jews in World War II. Yet, not a single peacekeeper came from a Marxist state. Also, the timing of the UN call for a ceasefire was unfortunate in coming after Israel had basically defeated the Arabs. This made UN actions appear more effective than they really were, since both sides might have ignored an earlier ceasefire request. The 48 War also caused many Israelis to view the UN suspiciously. In their view, the organization was not so active until the Arab side was losing, 
and then called for a ceasefire to keep the Arabs from full defeat and being forced to accept the consequences. The point I'm driving at, then, the resolution of this first post-war conflict raised real hopes that United Nations diplomacy could resolve the Palestinian issue. Hopes that wouldn't survive the 1950s. Well, for the next few years, the Middle East remained quiet, with the U.S., Britain, and France having declared their intention to prevent any violent changes in Middle Eastern boundaries. The same three Western powers also pledged to try to prevent an arms race by controlling the shipment of weapons into the Middle East. But then came 1955. In a surge of nationalism, Egyptian radio started 24-hour broadcasts of anti-Israel propaganda. And violence against Israel, especially on its borders with Egypt, soon soared. Now, realize here, the Arab world was far from united. While the League of Arab States had been founded back in 1945, even before the United Nations, their governments were not all at peace with each other. But all the Arab states resented the way a Jewish country had been planted in their midst. And they still smarted over their 1948 defeat by an enemy that was smaller in numbers and geographically. In that context, some Arab governments began to support guerrillas who had been carrying out hit-and-run missions into Israel. For their part, the now 1.5 million Israelis felt under increasing attack just as their long-standing dream of gaining a Jewish homeland had finally become a reality. Israel is a very small country. In width, it ranges from 12 to 71 miles. And Israelis confronted 40 million hostile surrounding Arabs. Israel's security rested on superior weapons, discipline, leadership, military training, and Israel counted heavily on diplomacy particularly with supportive Western powers, and most especially with the United States. Israeli leaders felt they could defeat the Arab military forces again, and they thought without outside interference by the UN and others, they could do so decisively, bringing peace. In February 1955, all this prompted an Israeli military raid against the Egyptian army, located in the Gaza Strip between the two states. 
And then a charismatic new Arab leader burst onto the scene. Gamal Abdel Nasser of Egypt. One background point. When the U.S. government has meddled in Middle Eastern politics, on occasion via covert operations, this has sometimes resulted in what's been called blowback. That is, because of changing internal political dynamics, a policy aimed at accomplishing one thing ends up resulting in something quite different, even totally contrary, countering what was intended to happen. We'll see examples of this in places like Iran and Afghanistan. Well, in Egypt, the CIA had been working with Nasser to establish a new broadcasting station called Radio Cairo. But as the 1950s wore on, what Nasser used Radio Cairo for was to send pan-Arab and anti-American messages right across the region. Well, at the 1955 Bandung Conference, Gamal Abdel Nasser made a really startling declaration. The state of Egypt was going to shift from being pro-Western to being neutral in the Cold War. Nasser then put Egypt's independent foreign policy right into action by announcing a $200 million arms deal with Czechoslovakia and the Soviet Union. Egypt then negotiated with the West to help build the Aswan Dam on the Nile in effort to bring electricity and modernization to rural Egypt. Although the U.S. and Britain agreed to help, privately, they doubted whether Egypt could really afford its costs for the huge pro project. And as all of this occurred, concerns surged within the Eisenhower administration about the extent of Soviet influence in Nasser's government. In mid-1956, when Gamal Abdel Nasser and Egypt recognized the People's Republic of China, Secretary Dulles abruptly withdrew all U.S. support from the Aswan Dam. Richard Nixon later called this a great mistake, since the Soviets immediately jumped in to finance the dam and soon were influencing the Nasser administration more than ever before. And then, to retaliate against this U.S. move, Nasser announced he was going to nationalize the company that had been running the Suez Canal and use funds from canal traffic to help build the dam. And Nasser had taken this move to nationalize the Suez Canal, despite his prior promises to keep the canal international in character, 
and open to commerce by all, at least until 1968. Now, as a legal matter, Nasser was well positioned, since the company that managed the canal was organized under Egyptian law and enjoyed a concession from the Egyptian government to carry out its business. But those key shareholders in the Suez Canal Company, the governments of France, Britain, and the U.S., immediately complained that Egypt had arbitrarily and unilaterally seized an international agency. Now, nationalizing the canal company did not violate international law. There had been no talk on Egypt's part of withholding compensation from anyone. But the Suez Canal was of vital importance to international commerce. It represented an enormous shortcut for shipping, eliminating the long haul all around the African continent. Here, in the heart of the Middle East, the strategic position of the West was beginning to look kind of shaky, and the French, in particular, had very little patience with Nasser. You see, as part of his pro-Third World, anti-Western orientation, the Egyptian leader was assisting revolutionaries in Algeria, a French colony in North Africa. And the French government, reeling from its own military defeat in another French colony, Vietnam, something we'll get into in the future, France just badly wanted to topple Nasser. The British view was, after guarding Egypt for decades as a British protectorate, they'd relinquished control and supported Egyptian independence. Egypt had signed international agreements regarding the Suez Canal, and now this Egyptian strongman, Nasser, was brazenly breaking these commitments. Most troublesome. If Nasser controlled the canal, he'd have a stranglehold over the vast quantities of British trade flowing through the Mediterranean, back and forth to India and Asia. The British felt it intolerable, here in the midst of the Cold War, for the Suez Canal to be subject to the whims of Nasser, an unfriendly and irresponsible ruler now closely tied to the Soviets. Next, Egypt closed the canal to Israeli shipping, while more border raids convinced Israel it really needed the Gaza Strip located between Egypt and Israel for its national security. And so, the British, French, and Israelis cooked up a scheme. Israel would attack Egypt, and then the two European powers would present themselves as peacemakers, sending in their military forces 
And in taking charge, Great Britain and France would then occupy the Suez Canal. Well, right on schedule, October 1956, Israeli forces crossed into the Sinai Peninsula. And soon, they'd routed the Egyptian army again. As planned, Britain and France called on both sides to withdraw 10 miles away from the Suez Canal so that Anglo-French forces might move in, temporarily, they said, to protect this important international waterway. Israel immediately agreed, but in Egypt, Nasser didn't want to be viewed as having let the old colonial powers, Britain and France, back into Egypt to run the Suez Canal all over again. So, and just as anticipated, Egypt turned down the proposal. At that point, without even giving advance notice to the Eisenhower administration, seen as too legalistic and idealistic for this kind of scheme, Britain and France intervened in force. Their paratroopers seized key posts around the canal, and their forces shelled an Egyptian port. The Egyptians responded by blocking the canal with the wreckage of sunken ships. The Soviets then got into the act threatening to come to the military aid of the Egyptians, if need be. The U.S. government responded that moving the Red Army into the Middle East could trigger World War III and urge moderation on all sides. Back in Washington, President Eisenhower and Secretary Dulles Intent on trying to win Arabs onto the American side of the Cold War? They could not have been more furious. Dulles, that ex-New York lawyer, declared that those three close U.S. allies, the Britain, the British, the French, and the Israelis, had violated the United Nations Charter. So here we see... American legalism entering our story again. The Egyptians had a right to nationalize the Suez Canal Company. The others were playing power politics without a shadow of a legal right to do so. Ultimately, both superpowers condemned the intervention. Great Britain then descended into political chaos with resignations throughout the government. The British currency slid badly in value, and both India and Pakistan threatened to withdraw from the British Commonwealth. In international disgrace, Britain, France, and Israel all retreated, leaving Egypt back in charge of the Suez Canal, and a U.N. emergency force of peacekeepers positioned between the Egyptians and Israelis. Nasser heaped credit on the Soviets for having supported Egypt in the crisis, and the Kremlin just delighted in the whole Soviet 
I'm sorry, the whole Suez mess. Not only did it show the Western powers bumbling around, working at cross-purposes with each other, but it had neatly diverted attention from the 1956 Soviet invasion of Hungary. The Hungarians had tried to gain more independence from the Soviets, but a force of 200,000 Soviet troops crushed the movement. After the Suez Crisis, the U.S. busied itself with damage control, trying to use its stance to placate the Arab states, while ignoring grumbling from Europe that Eisenhower had let down America's closest allies. More generally, the Suez Crisis demonstrated clearly just what a Cold War hotspot the Middle East had become. With threats of war from the Soviets, the disgrace of two key NATO allies, and even more bitterness between Israel and the Arabs. Okay, next, let's move across the Middle East to Iran. In 1951, Dr. Mohammad Mossadegh became premier of Iran. Mossadegh was a cagey and skillful politician with a nationalist flair, and he soon set his sights on gaining more oil profits for Iranians. At that time, the Anglo-Iranian Oil Company, controlled by British shareholders, was extracting all of Iran's oil. Note, the 1950s was long before the oil-producing developing states were to organize themselves into OPEC, the Organization of Petroleum Exporting Countries. Back in this day, Western companies could threaten to cut oil production in problematic countries and increase it in compliant ones. For decades, the British investors, who'd supplied the initial equipment and the technological expertise for Iranian oil production, they had taken 80% of Iran's oil profits, leaving Iranians 20%. But in 1950, a U.S. company, Standard Oil, signed a deal with Saudi Arabia giving the Saudis 50% of the oil profits there. Iran then went to the British, asking to renegotiate their deal, so they too would receive half the profits. After the British refused, Mossadegh opted to expropriate the British company's holdings. A legal move, given adequate and prompt compensation. In all of this, top American officials sympathize with Iran. Secretary of State Dean Acheson was quite fond of Mossadegh, once calling the bald premier a pixie with a billiard ball head. But American efforts to mediate between Britain and Iran totally failed. And then, problems multiplied. 
Iran at this time was one of the more democratic Middle Eastern states. It had an elected legislature, but also a traditional monarch, Mohammad Reza Shah Pahlavi, called the Shah of Iran. In the next decade, the 60s, the Shah instituted what he called the White Revolution, aimed at modernizing Iran, eradicating disease, providing rights to women, promoting land reform and literacy, all while enhancing the authority of the Shah. In power from 1941 to 1979, the Shah routinely repressed opposition, and from 57 on, his primary instrument was a secret police force known as Savak that tortured, intimidated, and killed opponents. Well, back in the early 50s, Secretary of State John Foster Dulles came to agree with the British government that Mohammed Mossadegh was relying too much on the Iranian Communist Party. Some major oil companies then conspired to pressure Iran by stopping its oil from reaching the market. And in turn, Mossadegh rigged a public referendum to approve his policies overwhelmingly. At that point, the Shah tried to remove Mossadegh from power. When that attempt failed, and when pro-Mossadegh supporters took to the streets, the Shah hurried off to leave the country. This was when the CIA stepped in. It found political opponents to Mossadegh, it funded their operations, and then helped organize street demonstrations against him. Eventually, authorities arrested Mossadegh, and the Shah returned to Iran, toasting a top CIA official at a state dinner as follows. I owe my throne to God, my people, my army, and to you. But now, the U.S. government had become closely associated in the eyes of many Iranians with the Shah's rule. And through the Cold War, a constant flow of advanced American weapons to the Shah's government strengthened that popular perception. And that takes us, in closing, to the Eisenhower Doctrine and Intervention in Lebanon. From colonial days through these early military defeats by Israel, the Arab world had often been marked by a whole lot of disunity. Nasser's hope was to unleash powerful nationalist forces that would bring revolution to conservative, oil-rich Middle Eastern states like Saudi Arabia. Nasser saw control over oil as the key factor to uniting Arabs, bringing them new muscle in international relations, and stimulating economic development.
But for its part, the U.S. government had good relations with the very sheiks Nasser was targeting for revolution. And with American policymakers fearing that Nasser's brand of leftist nationalism might very well turn into communism, the U.S. government led the effort to bring together Nasser's enemies and to stave off the revolutions that Nasser wanted to incite. The U.S. sent military aid to anti-Nasser governments in Jordan, Lebanon, and Iraq. In 1957, President Eisenhower used his bipartisan appeal to persuade Congress to adopt a resolution that came to be known as the Eisenhower Doctrine. This authorized the U.S. to use armed force to come to the aid of any Middle Eastern country requesting assistance to combat, quote, overt armed aggression from any nation controlled by international communism. And the president tied in another $200 million in economic assistance. Now, pause here to notice how the Eisenhower Doctrine differed from the Truman Doctrine. Truman had talked about supporting free peoples threatened by communism, with free peoples meaning a democratic state or a regime maybe headed toward a democratic future. In contrast, Eisenhower's statement covered all American allies and friends in the Middle East, whether or not they were democratic. And this was because, given Middle Eastern oil, that region's stability had become critically important to U.S. economic interests. One way to see this, the Eisenhower Doctrine served as the U.S. announcement it was going to fill the Middle Eastern power vacuum created after the exit of Britain and France in the Suez Crisis. Well, the Eisenhower Doctrine then got immediately tested. In Iraq in 1958, a pro-Nasser revolt broke out, led by unhappy members of the Iraqi army. And in short order, the king of Iraq the premier, the crown prince, all got assassinated. Those developments occurred so fast that Eisenhower didn't think it would be effective for the U.S. to try to intervene. But the administration had a watchful eye on other Middle Eastern countries friendly to the U.S. when suddenly civil war erupted in Lebanon. After gaining independence, the Lebanese government had allowed cultures to mix quite freely. But Lebanon's political forces were shifting, unstable, fragmented, and for a time, very carefully balanced. When the president of Lebanon tried to gain a second term in office, a move that the Constitution prohibited, violence ensued and cultural tolerance 
swiftly disappeared among Lebanon's one and a half million citizens. Pro-government battled anti-government. Muslim groups clashed with Christian ones. And pro-Nasser forces fought anti-Nasser ones. Overlaid on all this was a really deep rift between the poor and conservative peasant farmers of the countryside and the much more developed and worldly inhabitants of Beirut, with its reputation of being a cosmopolitan, even a sinful city. And then, the pro-Western Christian president of Lebanon requested U.S. military support. In accordance with the Eisenhower Doctrine, the U.S. responded by sending 14,000 U.S. Marines into Lebanon, covered by the Navy's Sixth Fleet. Although this muscle stabilized the situation, as did a British operation in Jordan, anti-Western sentiment surged through the region. And the Soviets soon took full advantage, with Nikita Khrushchev hinting at open warfare with the U.S. The Soviets, he said, were the true friends of the Arabs. On leaving office, President Eisenhower observed, maybe prophetically, if we are forced to become an arbiter, we will become embroiled in Middle Eastern difficulties forever. So, by the end of Eisenhower's administration, American influence was still very strong in Israel. No oil. Jordan. No oil. And Saudi Arabia. Oceans of oil. The Shah, a loyal supporter of the U.S., still ruled Iran. Some oil. But all the rest of this increasingly important region was either in turmoil or openly antagonistic to America. And that's where we'll quit for today.